Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1937 murder of Alice Parsons. And, and you know, it's her mantra. Um, and it's one line that struck me so many times, and she said it so many times in the investigation, and this is it. If there is no body, there is no murder. And so she could care less about them catching her in any lie. Didn't matter to her, because if there is no body, there is no murder. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Most Notorious. Thank you for joining me. So happy to have you tune in week after week. So before we get to the interview, I know I haven't mentioned this in a while, but uh, if, if you're interested in really actively supporting the show, you can, of course, go to patreon.com slash most notorious. But if your budget is tight, yet you are still interested in showing your support and you haven't done so yet, please, please head over to iTunes and just leave me a handful of stars there Sending a few kind words my way is is always so appreciated if you have a few extra moments. And it keeps me motivated in keeping the show going week after week. So, hey, thanks again. And on to the show. So my guest today is Stephen C. Drelak. He has over 30 years of law enforcement experience. And he is an internationally recognized expert in the area of hot zone forensic attribution. He is an author as well and is here today to talk about his book, Long Island's Vanished Heiress, The Unsolved Alice Parsons Kidnapping. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. So before we get to the book, I I have to ask you, what is hot zone forensic attribution? Um, Basically, it means that I spent most of my career inside of a containment suit. Um, whenever there's a crime involving a hazardous material, whether it be a chemical, uh, biological, or radiological substance, uh, you have to be able to work the crime scene without basically committing suicide because the material in the crime scene will kill you very quickly. Um, and of course, th- that expanded greatly once the whole weapons of mass destruction thing began in the uh, late 1990s and early 2000s. And so I spent a tremendous amount of time 
uh, instructing uh, federal agents, uh, federal agencies. I uh, was an instructor at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, and as uh, I actually served as Director of Homeland Security for the United States Environmental Protection Agency for about 15 years. And that's in addition to my 25 years as a local detective in New York. So uh, I've spent a lot of time inside crime scenes, and most of the crime scenes that I've worked uh, were basically too dangerous for anybody to work in without special training and special equipment. Wow. Um, you must have some, some incredible stories. Uh, quite a few, and some of them had ended up in my historical fiction books, but go ahead. Oh, yeah, and I actually do want to ask you about some of your experiences and your books a little later on. Uh, but but first, um, if you don't mind, let's get into the Alice Parsons case. When did you first hear about this? Uh, it, actually, it was uh, all new to me, um, and I first learned about it in about 1995 when I got a call from my boss, who was the district attorney in Suffolk County, which is on the eastern end of Long Island in New York. Um, and he said, we need you to come and help us on, on a case. It's a cold case. And it turned out to be a court-ordered excavation looking for the remains of a young lady who had been kidnapped in 1937. Now, this is 1995, but new information had come in as a cold case. And so I participated in an excavation, which didn't produce any evidence, but the excavation actually took place um, at Alice Parsons' old farm, and her house was still there, and the buildings were still there, and uh, as I said, new information had come in, which turned out not to be very accurate. Um, and again, about four years later, additional information came in. Uh, there was another court order excavation. Again, uh, we did a dig. We actually had archaeologists from the Stony Brook University with us who were making sure that we we uh, did the dig correctly, looking for for that kind of material, uh, you know, uh, bones that were many, many years old. And so that's what got me going on it. And um, and I, uh, I, I'd say sometime around uh, about 2016 or 17, I decided to do a historical fiction that I wanted to include historical information in that book. And I decided to include Alice's case in the book, as well as uh, the sinking of a very famous ship known as the RMS Republic with 1.7 billion on, of gold on board. That actually happened in 1907 off the coast of Nantucket, uh, subject of an HBO special, and the gold is probably still there. But I included Alice in that story and, and her history. Once I was done with that book, some local historians kindly asked me to do a, a full book regarding the investigation of Alice Parsons' disappearance. I thought about it for about a year. I finally got access to the FBI's closed classified case file at the National Archives. That's 9,000 pages of investigative material. I spent close to a month in the National Archives, photographing almost every single page of the investigation. What helped me a lot in understanding what I was reading was the fact that I had spent close to 25 years inside of a, an investigative agency and so I was understanding not only what I was reading, but the nuances uh, of the reports and the things that weren't said, so to speak. And uh, I was able to put together uh, a, basically a narrative, a day-by-day -day narrative as to what happened from the moment she disappeared until the moment the case practically ended. Um, and so that, that's where, how I got started on this. 
Yeah, it, it's really detailed, um, especially the, the interaction between the different law enforcement agencies involved in this case, <laughs> but we, which I'm sure we'll get to shortly. But, but speaking of Alice Parsons' history, maybe we should start there. Can you kind of summarize her background and tell us how she eventually comes to meet her husband, William? Yes. Um, uh, first of all, what's most important about Alice Parsons, believe it or not, is her uncle. Uh, if it wasn't for her uncle, she may not have come to the end that she came to. Um, her uncle, his name was Colonel Timothy Williams, was her benefactor and basically her guardian. She had two brothers, and her mother died when she was very young, somewhere around four or five years old. And her father decided that he was in, in no position to raise a daughter. And he asked Alice's uncle to, uh, to, to take over the guardianship of just her. He, he remained the father over the two boys. So the uncle, Colonel Timothy Williams, was a rather famous man at the time. Uh, he was actually a high-level official in, in Albany, New York. I believe he worked for the two different governors. And more importantly, he was the president of the uh, rapid transit system in Brooklyn, New York. So he became a wealthy man. And because he was a wealthy man, he was able to give Alice the kind of life that uh, you wouldn't normally see. She went to the best uh, boarding schools. As a matter of fact, she attended the same school that Jacqueline Kennedy would eventually attend, as well as Gloria Vanderbilt. When she finished her schooling, her uncle made sure she was given an opportunity to tour Europe. Um, she could speak several languages. And when she returned to, to the United States, she eventually met this man, William Parsons. He himself came from a rather wealthy family. They were in the, in the paper business. And um, at one point in time, he decided he was no longer interested in the paper manufacturing business. And he decided he wanted to become a farmer. So he and Alice uh, purchased a farm in Stony Brook, New York. They purchased that farm with, with money given to them from, from the colonel. They, they worked the farm for, for quite a few number of years. The colonel passed away. She received uh, a huge benefit from the will. Um, then the colonel's wife died and Alice became even more wealthy. Although the money didn't come to her immediately, it was going to come to her over time. And uh, that is what made her a target uh, in this particular case. There, there was somebody who was looking to, to find a way to obtain that money. So what was her, her personality like? Was she outgoing, introverted? She, uh, from everything that I've read, and of course there was numerous interviews of her friends by the FBI that were all in the file, and they all talked to her about her being uh, very quiet, very shy, very sweet, um, loved children. Um, she belonged to the Flower Club and did uh, all sorts of volunteer work. Basically, she was beloved by the community uh, and it was a great loss to the community members when, when she disappeared. So I guess we would call this a love triangle. Uh, on one hand, we have Alice and William Parsons. And on the other, a uh, third inhabitant of the house, adult inhabitant of the house, who comes to live with them. Uh, I believe it's 1930, 1931, right? That is correct. That's Anna Kapianov, and uh, she was uh, basically a, a Russian uh, housekeeper who uh, became employed by the Parsons. Uh, and one of the reasons that she was hired, uh, and this is something that the newspapers all got wrong at the time, 
Uh, one of the reasons she was hired is because Alice uh, was trying to have a child and uh, she was not having any success. She had seen many doctors and uh, one of the doctors recommended that she, she stop working so hard. She, it was a working farm and she was working on that farm continually, especially in the beginning. And so they, they decided that they would get a housekeeper. And the housekeeper was introduced to them through uh, William Parsons' sister. And so Anna uh, Kapianov uh, came to work for them, and she brought along with her her five-year-old son. And uh, he, Roy was his name, he, he was five at the time. He was about 10 years old at the time of the kidnapping. The, the interesting thing about this, as far as history is concerned, uh, again, uh, the history at the time had it wrong. Everybody would believe that, that the young boy was actually the son of William Parsons because he had spent time in England at about the same time that Anna did. But uh, the times don't match up exactly. And there was no way he could have been the father. He had actually left England about six months before that boy was conceived. Uh, but there's, to this day, there's still speculation on some of the websites that he may have been the father. He was not. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, she definitely has a really colorful past. <laughs> I would say most of the information that, that she provided at the time to law enforcement and to anybody else, including the immigration authorities, was all lies. Um, she just one lie after another. And it, they just built up and they built up over years. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I, I think I chronicled dozens upon dozens of, of, uh, of lies that she told uh, during, uh, before, during, and after the investigation. So what is the family dynamic like in May, June of 1937? Uh, what are the living arrangements? How is everyone getting along? Well, they're not. Um, actually, that real trouble started about uh, eight or nine months before that. Um, the fall before, sometime around September, October, um, Alice's brother uh, was getting married, one of her brothers, um, Howard, who was a Hollywood executive. And Howard was getting married in California. Alice ended up attending that, that wedding by herself. Um, during that period of time, uh, it became Clear, according now, this is uh, from transcripts that I've seen from hidden microphones and interviews that uh, the lead investigator from the FBI had with, with Mr. Parsons. Anyway, Anna was making demands uh, to the point where she didn't want William to even speak to his wife anymore. He, she wanted him to find some way for her to be pushed out of the home. She even had him sign a contract which his lawyer opposed, basically saying that if she, the Russian housekeeper, was fired for any reason whatsoever, she would receive a large sum of money. I believe it's about $25,000. And by the way, that $25,000 she demanded in that contract happened to be the same exact amount of money that was found on the ransom note. So there was a lot of disharmony. There was uh, lots of fighting going on uh, within the home and arguments, which uh, I believe the arguments, the young boy at the time, Roy Dimitri Parsons, he would have heard these. And yet he told the investigators that uh, no such arguments took place. Yet both Anna and William later on uh, told the FBI that those, those, some of the violent arguments were taking place in the house. So for some reason, Roy decided or was told uh, not to tell the truth to that. So correct me if, if I'm wrong. 
But Anna, wouldn't you say, was a pretty domineering character, calling all of the shots in the house, giving orders to both Mr. and Mrs. Parsons, who submitted to all of her demands. Oh, absolutely. And, and there's two reasons for that. As far as Alice's reason is concerned, she was just the type of person who, who didn't have a powerful uh, personality. And uh, she could not uh, she could not stand up to uh, to the Russian housekeeper, Anna. Um, as far as William is concerned, Anna and he entered into a sexual relationship very early on uh, in, in her time there. And uh, she dominated him emotionally and physically. And uh, that, that was that was proven in several different ways as far as their, their physical relationship goes. Um, one of them, which I found fascinating from a forensic standpoint, uh, most people wouldn't think of this, is that um, Alice was trying extremely hard to have a child. So there was no need for birth control. And uh, we have the medical records where she's she meeting with different doctors, including specialists in New York City. At this very time uh, when uh, used condoms, the FBI found it in the, in the sanitary system, hundreds of used condoms. So somebody in the house was having sex <laughs> uh, with, with protection, and uh, it wasn't Alice. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so let's go straight to June 10th, 1937. Would you mind walking us through that day, starting with that morning? Absolutely. Um, it, it, on that morning, the, the family woke up and had breakfast together. William needed to go into New York City to have meetings regarding uh, their side business. They had a side business where they produced uh, a, a, a pate uh, from squab. Those of you who don't know what squab is, it's pigeon. So they raised pigeons and they made this pate, which, by the way, at the time was a big hit. It was used at a lot of weddings and, and, and used at fancy restaurants. And so he was looking for a way to distribute it further than, than what they had. And he had these meetings set up in New York City. So now you, you got to remember, since Alice isn't here, we only know what happened that morning uh, based upon William's testimony, the housekeeper Anna Kapianov's testimony, and her young son, who was about 10 years old at the time. And so according to these three, and we'll, we'll put all of their stories basically together, is that um, after they ate breakfast, Alice drove her husband uh, William Parsons to the train station in, in a little town called St. James, right outside of Stony Brook. He got on the train. He went to New York. The FBI, in fact, corroborated the fact that he did arrive in New York at a certain time and that he did have his meetings. Now, sometime later in, in the uh, morning, um, according to Anna, uh, two people drove up in a car uh, to the farmhouse. Roy, by the way, had gone to school by that point. And uh, these two people uh, stayed in their car, and uh, Alice Parsons went out to speak with them. Uh, Alice Parsons basically spoke to the housekeeper and said that I'm going to show these, these two people the Samus estate, which was part of her uncle's inheritance to her. She was looking to sell part of it. And she got into the car with these two people, and she left, and nobody ever heard from her again. When William got home uh, that evening, uh, he called the police. And uh, he, he got a hold of the uh, Brookhaven Town Police and he spoke to a lieutenant there. And um, that's when the investigation started, once the lieutenant arrived at his house. And before I forget this is a very important point, within the first four hours of the investigation, he and Anna told nine separate major lies to the police. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, as I was reading your book, I was just flabbergasted by how easily they lied to police right from the start. One of the first things out of his mouth was that Anna was his sister and not his housekeeper. Absolutely. I, I'll never understand that one. How do you think you're going to be able to explain that your wife is missing and then you introduce this person as your sister when she's not? Uh, but you can never tell what what uh, people are thinking and, and why they do the things that they do. But that was just uh, one of them. I think that the most the most serious lie told at that very moment within those first few hours was the insistence on the part of both the uh, housekeeper, Anna, and Mr. Parsons, where they insisted that Anna was home all day and the car that uh, Alice had used to drive her husband to the train station hadn't moved. And it couldn't have possibly been moved because Anna doesn't know how to drive. And they kept pressing at home throughout the investigation that Anna didn't know how to drive. Well, several months later in the investigation, um, one of William's relatives said that she was present when Anna took a road test. Um, Anna clearly knew how to drive, and so there were witnesses in the town that saw Anna driving many, many times. But for some reason, the housekeeper as well as William wanted the police and the FBI to believe that she couldn't drive. And that was always a question. Why did they want them to believe that? And they wanted them to believe that uh, because they wanted everybody to believe that the car was never moved. In fact, it, it had been moved. And there was a witness to the fact that it had been moved. And that became critical in the investigation. That initial questioning was so unbelievable. Uh, not unbelievable as, as I don't believe it, but just so surprising. Uh, when the officer was talking to William, Anna kept butting in with, she was kidnapped. She was kidnapped. And she was trying to, to dominate the conversation, even when the focus wasn't on her. Yes. As a matter of fact, I believe she was the first person to bring up the subject of kidnapping. And the local police, and to this day, they, they still do the same thing. I say they, we. Uh, I was one of them. Um, the first thing you look for is, you know, was there a, a domestic argument? Uh, did, did she go and flee, you know, to a family member? Or perhaps... Um, she just wanted to be alone or she, she left with a friend. There's so many things other than kidnapping. Kidnapping is pretty far down the list. Although during that period of time, the kidnappings were very, very common, especially for money. So I, I can understand the police having it somewhere at the top of their list, but not at the very top. And, and she just insisted about a possible kidnapping, which really, when you put it together with her insistence about them searching for a kidnapping note or a ransom note, now you, your your suspicion is really raised as to what her motives are. Yeah, that, that first officer was so astute. He noticed a container of chloroform on the table, and when he went upstairs to interview her son, came back down, that chloroform was gone. Yes, and again, it became another critical piece of the investigation, the fact that the chloroform container was uh, there and then it disappeared. It, it, later on in the investigation, they, they, the FBI tracked that down. Both Anna and William lied uh, to the FBI ab about the chloroform. They basically said it, there was never any chloroform. They produced not only the records of the purchase by William, they also had an eyewitness, meaning the pharmacist who provided it to him. Um, it was clear that he had gotten it. He lied about it. She lied about it. And um, 
and then in, the, in an undercover recording of electronic intercept, which they actually had in 1937, Anna admitted that uh, she destroyed the bottle. And so that it was right there on, on the record. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So, so there was a ransom note. How did that ransom note materialize? Uh, and again, another very important part of the investigation. Uh, so many fascinating things here. The uh, ransom note was found in Alice's car uh, and on the floor in the rear seat area. The car had been searched by a criminal investigator earlier in the evening. Um, he claims there was no note there. When I first read that, when I first started doing this case, before I had access to the FBI file, I... I made comments to people who asked me about the case that, well, that's, that's possible. He could have missed it. Um, I've met some law enforcement officers in my time who weren't very thorough and they could have easily missed a piece of paper par partially hidden under a floor mat. But when I got to the FBI file and I started reading more, I realized that it was searched by that person and he could have missed it. But then it was searched by another investigator a short time later and it was not there. Uh, that's two full searches. Both of them aren't going to miss this thing. And the third one who found it described that most of the uh, note, which was a novel, was exposed. It wasn't hidden under the mat. As a matter of fact, three quarters of it was exposed. 
So the chances of the first two missing it is pretty slim. What that means is we know when it was what time the first search took place. We know what time the second search took place, which now we're into the early morning hours. The place is crawling with police. Nobody could have slipped onto the property. And then we know when the third search took place, which is probably sometime around 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning, and the note was found. So somebody from inside the house, okay, had to have planted that note in the car during that those, those wee hours. I've accounted for every law enforcement person who was in the house and every prosecutor that was in the house. There was no press people present at all. And so that, that just left William Parsons, Anna Kapionov, and the 10-year-old boy Roy. One of those three had to plant that note in the car that evening. When, when police were given the ransom note, did they take it seriously as a kidnapping at all, or did they suspect Anna or William uh, were behind it right from the start? There is some suspicion on Anna immediately, mostly because of the way she was acting, insisting that they search for a note, insisting that it was a kidnapping. And as you mentioned before, the lieutenant from the Brookhaven Police Department, he, he was a, quite a sharp individual and good at his job. And so his, his antenna went up immediately. On the other hand, they also had a potential for a real kidnapping. They did have a note. And so they weren't going to take any chances along that line. As, as, uh, as, as explained in the story, one of the problems that arose was that the contents of the note was immediately, when I say immediately, I'm talking about within an hour, the contents were sold to the press by one of the state police officers who were present. That means that you can't have a payment at a train station. In this case, it was the Jamaica train station at a certain time. How in the world could you make a kidnapping payment when you've got two dozen press people all with cameras and flash bulbs standing by to take everybody's picture? So obviously the, the bribe could not be paid, excuse me, the ransom could not be paid and uh, because of the sale of the note. And that became part of the issue between the locals and the federal agents uh, during the course of the investigation. The other point you make in your book about that, it, it was a female reporter from the newspaper and she immediately contacted the FBI, right? So the FBI knew about this only an hour and a half after the ransom note was discovered. Yes, yes, she did. And uh, she was from the Daily News. She was quite a, a good reporter also. And uh, she, by the way, that same reporter became critical at the, at the end of this, this strange tale. But yes, uh, they knew uh, before the FBI knew, they had all the details. Uh, and that they were pretty much printed all the details in the newspaper the next day. So it really hurt the law enforcement effort to, that, that they couldn't follow through with the ransom. Uh, looking back in hindsight, there was never really going to be an effort to collect this ransom. The kidnapper didn't exist, so to speak, uh, in, in my mind, from what I've read. Nonetheless, $25,000 was gathered and everyone was prepared to follow through on this possibility of a kidnapping, just in case. Absolutely. The, uh, once the Bureau got involved, uh, they coordinated with, uh, with William Parsons' brother-in-law. Uh, his name was Richardson Pratt, very wealthy man, lived in Nassau County. Um, he produced the, the cash. It was all um, copied, photographed, serial numbers taken down. As a matter of fact, I have copies of all that material, the actual bills. And uh, they had it ready to go at a moment's notice, and it was never 
ever taken out of his safe after that. It just wasn't needed because this wasn't about the $25,000 ransom. So how involved was J. Edgar Hoover in the investigation? And what was his opinion on all of this? Well, J. J. Edgar basically oversaw the investigation almost on a daily basis. The inspector on the case, who was was quite good at these kidnappings, his name was E.J. Keneally. And E.J. Keneally was one of Hoover's top people when it came to uh, handling kidnapping cases. And that's basically what E. Keneally did. He went from city to city around the country handling major kidnapping cases. And there were quite a few of them at the time. Uh, But Hoover and he were in communication almost on a daily basis. Again, I have records of their phone calls and records of their memos and uh, back and forth. There was a lot of teletypes and telegrams. Um, so they were in commu- close communication. Um, at one point in the investigation, I don't want to jump ahead, but Keneally was absolutely convinced that, that William Parsons was about to confess. He had him on the verge of confessing, and I have to um, agree with his assessment at the time that all the things that were happening, that, that Parson was the term we used, like to use, he was about to break. And uh, Keneally was so convinced he invited J. Edgar Hoover to the interview. Hoover left Washington, uh, flew up to New York, went to the FBI field office in New York, and was in the room when William Parsons signed a confession. Now, that confession he later recanted, and the confession didn't have as many details as, in the, as you would like, but J. Edgar was in the room. So, so as you state in your book, Longmeadow Farm, it, it was just chaotic. People coming and going. Alice Parsons' family members came from out of state and, and were living there. And, and two special agents actually move into the Parsons' house. Actually, they do that, but they do it surreptitiously. It was agreed amongst all the criminal investigators, and that included the Brookhaven Town Police, the State Police, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, and the FBI. It was agreed that the FBI would be the lead. Mr. Parsons pleaded with everybody and all the officers. There were literally hundreds of people on the property now, in and out of the house, as well as reporters. And uh, Mr. Parsons pleaded with the FBI to take control and, and get these people out of here. And the way he continually convinced the local authorities to leave the premises was to say that his people would also be leaving. There would be no law enforcement on the, on the property at this point in time. And they all left for about two hours. And then under the cover of darkness, uh, with a prearrangement between Mr. Parsons and Inspector Keneally, two FBI agents snuck through the woods and entered the home and stayed in an upstairs bedroom for probably close to two to three months. So a bloody ax at some point was found on the farm, right? Yes, and, and it, it turned out to be nothing. The, 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 uh, the axe had uh, pigeon blood on it and, and pigeon feathers. and the, None of those things that uh, came up on the first night uh, were, were worthwhile. I, I, I want to make a point about how things were done back in 1937. I find this kind of ironic. Uh, was that, uh, yes, they recovered the axe and, 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 and things like that, but they put it in the back seat of the chief of police car. Nobody took a picture of it. There's no sketches to where it was found. And, and that gets back to the ransom note either. I told you there was a controversy as to whether or not, you know, you could have seen the note when it was in the back seat of the car. 
one photograph of an untouched piece of evidence answers all those questions. And yes, they had the capability of doing it in those days. They just didn't do it, um, which, which hurt them in, in the long run. But there was very little uh, recording of uh, very specific items in the case, and there should have been. It would have made uh, the job a lot easier for the Bureau in the end. But uh, I, I want to bring up one thing, more thing about the, uh, the ransom note, which ties into the FBI agents sneaking into the house. By having those two FBI agents into the house, Inspector Keneally knew what he was doing in the sense that he wanted them to search that place completely from top to bottom. And he wanted them to do it when the housekeeper and the husband, William Parsons, weren't there. And so he pulled those two out for interviews, uh, you know, the housekeeper and, and Mr. Parsons. And that gave free and complete access to the house to these two FBI agents. Why that is important is because they came up with probably the most critical piece of evidence in the entire case. When they were going through Roy, the 10-year-old boy's bedroom, he had a book on his shelf. And it was called The World War. And this is before World War II, so they hadn't named the number of the wars yet. It was just called The World War. And when they opened it up, they found a, a boy's drawing of an airplane. That drawing was done on the same kind of paper that was used in the ransom note. And when I say the same kind of paper, the watermarks matched. And the FBI traced those watermarks. And they found that that paper was sold in a Woolworth store in Patchogue, Long Island. They got the Russian housekeeper to admit that she was at that Woolworth store. She was at that counter where they sold that particular lettering pad. And she admits buying stuff, but not that one, she says. So here we have the housekeeper buying paper from the counter uh, where the same paper is sold that was used in the ransom note. Um, I thought that was a critical piece of evidence. Uh, and and um, when you start hearing all this, I think a lot of people are probably wondering right, right now, why wasn't she arrested? Why, why wasn't he arrested? Why wasn't there an indictment? And I think that is uh, one of the fundamental uh, aspects of this case. And I'll touch on that towards the end, if you would like. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So Anna was questioned multiple times by multiple people. At one point, she was baited into coming in to the station. Basically, they told her they had a suspect that they wanted her to help identify. But it all ended up being a ploy so they could interrogate her. Absolutely. And this is where one of her initial lies, when I say initial, we're still talking the first 24 hours of the case. But one of her initial lies was that her husband's dead. Um, and, um, and he wasn't. As a matter of fact, he, he was working in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and the state police tracked him down. And that they, for some reason, thought that he was involved with this. They had no evidence of that whatsoever, other than the fact that he was her uh, ex-husband. They were divorced. And um, they brought him to the state police headquarters in a place called Bayshore. And uh, they then um, convinced the FBI that they needed to bring Anna to the state police headquarters to view this person, this possible suspect, when in fact they knew that she already knew him. Uh, that there was nothing, nothing for her to, to view. The, their point about bringing her to the state police barracks was to get her away from the FBI so that the local authorities could question her themselves 
outside the presence of the FBI. And the leader of this group of, of law enforcement, local law enforcement people, was an assistant district attorney within the district attorney's office by the name of Lindsay Henry. One of the ironic parts of this whole investigation is Lindsay Henry's son, 40 years later, became the district attorney in Suffolk County. His name was Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry hired me. Crazy. Very strange coincidence. So, so she is now at the state police uh, headquarters. There's uh, the FBI finally show up. They actually um, have to fight their way through the crowds of reporters just to get to the barracks door. The state police did not want to let the let the FBI agents into the building. Uh, that's how bad it got. There was one FBI agent who was inside the building, and he was trying to call out to his people, including Inspector Keneally, on a phone. State police officers tried to intercept that call. They contacted the telephone operator. There was an operator switchboard at the time and tried to convince the operator not to let that federal agent's call go through. Lots of reports about that. But the, the, as you can see, the war, they, they were trying to keep to themselves. Everybody thinks they're going to break the case. It's a headline news story. There was a real war going on between the groups. As a matter of fact, there was such a war going on at the time that, uh, and I've seen these memos, uh, J. Edgar Hoover ordered that all the phone lines being used in, in, in their local FBI building that they rented, uh, all of them be checked every single day, twice a day for wiretaps. That's how much they didn't trust the local authorities and how much the local authorities didn't trust them. So did they ever get close to breaking her ever? Or did she just continue to feed them lie after lie, offering false leads that went nowhere? There was no way that they were going to um, they were going to break Anna. She had a personality um, that uh, was, was very strong, and uh, sh- she was just not going to bend to their will. Uh, I, actually, in this whole investigation, I was always surprised how no one could best this woman. Uh, this Russian housekeeper, I, I think I, I put it the, at the very end of my book that the, this was a chess game between her. And Inspector Keneally, and, and quite frankly, uh, Anna won. She won in the end. What are the stranger aspects of this case had to do with the will? Um, slightly suspicious. Could, could you talk about the will? Yeah. Alice and, and William changed their wills about 30 days uh, before the kidnapping. And, and everybody put a lot of uh, stock in that as to uh, proof that, uh, that Anna uh, committed this crime. Anna did stand to benefit fr- from the wills if, if something happened to, uh, to, to Alice. There's no question about it. It, it. But it wasn't a huge amount of money. One of the things that, that goes against the argument that the wills was the, was the reason for the kidnapping is the fact that um, they changed their wills because one of the, her brothers was married and was about to have a, a child. And they wanted to include that child uh, in, in the wills. And, and they had done that for other nieces and nephews. Uh, by the way, the, the, some of those children are still alive, and I've been contacted by them after all these years. But So Alice's nieces and nephews are still with us. Um, so she wanted to include those nieces and nephews in the wills and any future nieces and nephews. And so th- that's why the wills were changed. It did benefit Anna to some aspects, but um, not to any great, great amount. Um, a lot of this had to do with, uh, it, it did have to do with money, but Anna really wanted Alice gone out of the relationship. She, the 
three were a crowd, and even William admitted to the FBI that uh, he had two women on his hands and one of them had to go. And that's pretty much a quote from him. So eventually a ground search was conducted by investigators and, and a sea search as well. Yes, uh, they, they had literally hundreds upon hundreds of volunteers, literally arm to arm, covering acre after acre. Uh, and they covered the community and they covered lots of roads. And, and, and that was all important. But I think what, what's most important about the search is the fact that the farm had been searched thoroughly by hundreds upon hundreds of volunteers in coordination with the FBI. Why that is important um, is because it's very hard to dig a hole. And by the way, I've tried this on some of my cases to dig a hole and fill it in and, and make it look like it never happened. Okay. And so if anyone thinks that Anna and, and William or Anna on her own could have dug a grave on the property, threw the body in, covered it up and made it look like, all right, that, that it never happened. And, that that's just not true. It's not going to not going to be. It's going to be found with with the hundreds of people walking across the, the lawn. So all these years, people have speculated that the body was buried, you know, on the farm, and uh, every indication is that it was searched thoroughly by hundreds. So probably not. That doesn't mean she wasn't buried nearby the farm. And according to Keneally and his calculations, he believes that that uh, she is within a certain amount of miles of, of the farmhouse. So there was a woman, a friend of Alice's, I, I believe she worked at the post office, who said she saw Alice later that day driving her car, right? Yes. As a matter of fact, the day that Alice was, was supposedly kidnapped, uh, sometime around, I believe it was noon, um, this person from the post office claims that she was getting into her car and, and she saw Alice, um, which, of course, goes against everything that, that uh, we were told that happened. Now, here's the problem with this, and, and this is why the FBI rejected this. Um, th this woman, uh, former postmistress, says that she was getting into her car. She was getting in from the passenger side. So she, these are bench seats in those days. So she had to slide across the bench seat, and as she put her hands on the steering wheel and was slipping in behind the wheel, she looked up and she saw Alice go by in the other direction at about 30 miles an hour. When you do the calculations on that, okay, and I've done them, and I put it into my, my presentation in my PowerPoint program, the math, she had a view of Alice for approximately a half a second, all right? As a matter of fact, she said that she, as she looked up, she saw, she started to raise her hand to wave, and the car was gone. Add that to the fact that uh, when this postmistress was brought to the house and asked to identify the car that Alice was driving, because Alice's car was still at the farm, and there was numerous other cars there between the law enforcement people and the press. She misidentified the car. This is literally the next day, all right, that she's doing this identification. So she misidentified the car. Everybody believes that this woman did see somebody, and she, she did think it was Alice, but it wasn't Alice. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's four years of fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Something else about this case I, I want to ask you about. Um, it had to do with a, a routine visit the morning of the alleged kidnapping by two garbage collectors to the farm. Would you talk about their, their stop and about any interaction they had or didn't have with, with Anna? Oh, certainly. And again, another lie on the part of Anna. Um, so here we have two trash men who have been coming to the house for, for quite a while. You know, this is a, a usual event. Um, they come to the house. They basically tell the FBI that they're met at the door uh, by Anna uh, of the farmhouse, and she hands them um, a box of feathers, okay? And uh, the can, which is usually in the kitchen, there's a kitchen can that they usually go in to, to, to get, is already outside. So they basically load the box of feathers in the, in the can and there's another can on the side of the house into the truck and they leave anna claims that when she brought the feathers to the door of the farmhouse and this is a an inward swinging door that alice was there because this was before the time in the morning when she was supposedly kidnapped so she said that alice was there and alice opened the door so she could walk out and hand herself in the box the trash man said, oh, no, there was nobody there. And the woman, Anna, was already on the porch, basically holding the box when she heard the truck come up. So Anna was trying to put Alice in the house at least an hour or so before when Anna claims that Alice was kidnapped. And that was a huge lie. I, I mean, <laughs> didn't... Anna think that that police would would follow up and question these these garbage men and, and compare their stories. It, I mean, what do you think was going through her head? And, and you know, it's her mantra. Um, it's one line that struck me so many times, and she said it so many times in the investigation. And this is it: if there is no body, there is no murder. And so she could care less about them catching her in any lie didn't matter to her because if there is no body, there is no murder. At, at a certain point, the FBI decided to try and turn Anna and William against each other, correct? Can you walk us through that attempt and explain whether it was successful? It was to some degree, uh, which is what led J. Edgar Hooper to, uh, to show up that, that, that one evening in New York. Um, and a lot of this had to do with the... Uh, bottle of chloroform. The FBI finally convinced William that Anna had something to do with Alice's kidnapping. And this story about these two people showing up, taking and her getting in their car to go look at the Samus property was nothing but a, a lie. And so uh, they, they convinced him. And he actually said, and this has been, this was recorded, uh, sometimes with a stenographer, sometimes on an electronic recorder. And he basically said that, yes, I truly believe that Anna is partially responsible for, for the uh, missing of Alice and possibly her death. And uh, th they finally convinced him that her relationship with him, uh, his relationship with her, meaning Anna, uh, and, and was all part of the reason why Alice disappeared and it was partially his fault. He had a great amount of guilt over that and uh, was ready to 
say that it was his fault. He wouldn't say what that fault was. He would never go so far as to say, I'm in on this, okay? But the, he was clearly covering something up. There was a, a falling out between them, but it was a very minor one. Point is, they got this partial confession out of him. And here was the big mistake in the investigation. I certainly don't mean the Monday morning quarterback. I don't know whether I would have done anything better or not. But they had him on the verge. They had this, this written confession signed. Then they let him get back again with Anna, knowing full well of her domineering personality. And in just a few, few short hours, she was able to change his mind, convince him that she had nothing to do with it, and had him recant his entire confession uh, in writing. William called the FBI agent down, the inspector down the next day, recanted the whole thing and, and signed a, a new statement. Uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a sight to see, but uh, they eventually made amends between them. But I think the most important aspect of that whole scenario where William started to falter and Anna was domineering was what came up in an undercover recording right after William had signed his, his partial confession. They were alone in a room. The closest FBI agent was at least 100 feet away. It was a large room uh, in a building in, in Manhattan. They were sitting at a, at a table, two chairs, and they were in whis whispering in whispered tones. They thought sure that that agent was too far away for them to be heard. What they didn't know is that there was a microphone under the table. And it picked up this one little tidbit, which I think is probably key to what happened to Alice. And this one little tidbit uh, was a conversation back and forth where uh, Anna said, well, you know, you went to the train station that morning with Alice. And his response was, that's what they say, but you know that isn't so. What that meant to me was the whole story about him going with Alice to the train station was a lie. He did go to the train station because he got on the train and he made his meetings in New York, but he didn't go with Alice. Alice was either dead or unconscious before he left for the train station. Um, the, the chloroform, that, that first officer who had seen that chloroform container, he had been perceptive enough to read and memorize the outside of that container, so he knew where it came from. And then law enforcement followed up, of course, and they tracked down the druggist who confirmed that he was the one who had sold it to William Parsons. Uh, yes, and it was more than a confirmation. The inspector Keneally actually brought, brought the pharmacist uh, to the farmhouse to confront William Parsons, who had been denying all along that uh, there was any chloroform. And the pharmacist walked, basically walked into the, uh, into the study at the farmhouse uh, I believe his name is Mr. Kane, and he said, that's the guy. That's the guy who bought it from me. He gave me his name. I wrote it down. Um, not only did he give me his name and then I write it down, but he picked up prescriptions at the same time for the Parson family. So I have no doubt in my mind that that's the man who got the chloroform from it. And in those days, it was basically a controlled substance, so there had to be a log entry on the chloroform. You could buy it off the counter, but they still had to write down the information as to who bought it. So, uh, yeah, there was no question about the chloroform and uh, very difficult to understand why w William kept denying it uh, in, in the face of all that evidence that he bought it. I believe at one point he may have made a comment that I, I was afraid to admit to it. 
um, because it would make Anna look bad. I have my theory as to what happened with the chloroform and what happened to Alice, but uh, it, it is a result of basically these two individuals. Oh my gosh, now, now you have piqued my interest. <laughs> would you mind sharing that theory? Not at all. I told you earlier that there's a great amount of, amount of disharmony in the home. There was uh, a lot of fighting. Um, both William and Anna indicated at times it had gotten violent, amongst the three of them, okay? Uh, I believe things got out of hand uh, the night before William was supposed to go to New York. Uh, whether Alice became hysterical or uncontrollable, I, I don't know, but something along that line. And I believe either Anna or William or both decided that they needed to calm her down and they used the chloroform on her. Unfortunately, half the bottle of the chloroform was gone. That's a deadly dose. Now, if you don't know what you're doing with the chloroform, you could easily kill somebody. They may not have intended to kill him. Quite frankly, by the, by the conduct of William, I, I almost believe that he thought that she was just unconscious and would be waking up in a couple of hours while he was in New York uh, and, and that everything would be fine because he was quite surprised and I think legitimately surprised when uh, she went missing. So I think the thing that the secret that William was holding was that there was an argument that there was a chloroform issue with Alice, that she went under or went unconscious, and that he then believed Anna's story that, oh, she recovered just fine, and then these two people showed up and she was kidnapped, um, when in fact she probably probably died from the chloroform. In that scenario, uh, do you think, um, could, could a single person like Anna have disposed of Alice's body? Oh, easily. Um, especially Anna, she was, she was a farm girl. Um, no question about it. And, and keep in mind that um, Anna continually said that when Alice came back from the train station after dropping her husband, the car had never been moved. Well, in fact, the car was moved. Um, we have eyewitnesses to the fact who showed up at the farm who said that the car was not where Anna said it was. It was in the garage. And so basically the car was moved. That means somebody had to move it. Anna was the only person there. So Anna moved the car. Anna could drive the car. We know that Anna could drive. All right. She could have put the body in the car, driven it to a spot, and, and disposed of it. Now, where that spot is, nobody knows. But we basically have an idea of where it needs to be based upon the amount of time she had and how far the car could go during that period of time. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And as a, a veteran investigator yourself, do you think that the evidence that was gathered minus a body, of course. Do you think it would have been enough to convict Anna of murder had the case been taken to trial? No, no, not at all. Uh, and not, not in my mind. Even though you have all the lies and you, you have uh, lots of circumstantial evidence, such as the ransom note being on the same watermark paper, it's, it's not enough to convict. However, it's certainly enough for an indictment which does not require beyond a reasonable doubt. It only requires probable cause. They had more than enough probable cause. The federal agents didn't have probable cause because believe it or not, they knew right along that this was a murder investigation. There is no murder federal statute. They were going under the kidnapping, the Limbaugh law at the time. And uh, they knew that they weren't going to be able to make a kidnapping case. And so they, um, they, they pretty much knew it was a murder case and, and the local authorities would have to bring an indictment for some kind of murder charge, which the uh, local authorities were, uh, were hesitant to do. 
Um, one, one thing I'd like to touch on before we run out of time, uh, which is, is very important, is the letters. Um, a lot of people hear about this investigation, and, and if you look at the, any of the headlines, and by the way, this case was the headline on the Daily News and the New York Times for, for close to a month. There was reportedly eight separate letters that came in from the kidnapper. In fact, they later determined it was kidnappers, a brother and a sister team. And the press reported on it, well, these letters. And the interesting thing about this was that they were all basically written in a green ink. It was the signature, so to speak, of the kidnappers. All of these letters were a ruse on the part of the FBI. They had had somebody attempt an extortion early on in the investigation, somebody who had nothing to do with the kidnapping but pretended to be. That person had sent the letter in, um, and Keneally decided to use that. And so he started writing these letters that were supposedly from the kidnappers to Anna and to her husband trying to get them to take some kind of action that would be incriminating, such as going and look at finding the body or, or going to check on the body. But these letters became a, a very interesting part uh, of the investigation. Uh, a, one quick note on this, again, showing Anna's being the conniving person she was. Keneally sent one of these letters in green ink, and he put in the letter an extra two pieces of writing paper, as if you had taken them off the pad and you pulled off too many. Those pieces of writing paper were secretly marked so that he could tell if they were ever used again. And one of the letters from the kidnappers was put on that paper by Anna. She saved it, and then she wrote her own letter pretending to be one of the kidnappers. So a very, very strange, strange uh, situation when it came to the kidnappers' letters. But they, none of it was real. But the newspapers to this day still report about the letters from the brother and sister team who were the kidnappers. So what ended the FBI's investigation into Anna and William? Well, there were two things. Um, the first one was a blunder on their part. Um, it, it happens, but it was a major blunder. When William and Anna and, and Roy left the state of New York, sometime uh, the December following uh, the kidnapping, and they moved to California. They, William and, and Anna had been separated for about a month while he made the arrangements in California. Keneally was of the opinion that the moment they got together again, in a row, they were going to be talking about the investigation and what was going on when he was gone, and you know, hopefully that he was going to hear some kind of admission, specifically about where the body was buried. Now, in order for, for this to work, they had to be kept under continual surveillance. And the FBI had to stay at least one step ahead of it, meaning that if the, they're coming to California, the FBI needed to know exactly where they were going to stay so that they could put electronic listening devices in their new quarters. Um, they were successful at that for the first two or three places that William stayed in. But when Anna arrived, they dropped the ball. Uh, they were they were surveilling them uh, in the car, and uh, William uh, became suspicious that he was being followed. He stopped his car. The FBI agent following him should have kept going. He didn't. He stopped his car. There was a confrontation, and basically in this business, once that happens, you have no longer an ability to surveil these people because they know they're under surveillance. 
they did not find out where they moved to on that first critical night, and so there was no way that they could have installed the listening device. Add that to the fact that the Bureau had put in thousands upon thousands of man hours. They still had half a dozen or more agents working on the case. J. Edgar Hoover decided that it was time to let it go. And uh, he basically told the local authorities that it's now in your, your ballpark and, uh, and we'll help you any way we can. And that's basically it. It went back to the local authorities. The district attorney at the time, I believe his name was Munder, did not want the case, did not want the responsibility for the case, and did absolutely nothing on the case when it was turned back over to the local authorities. So the rest of their lives, did they live them happily ever after? They appeared to. Um, they, they eventually built a home in California. In the 1960s, William came down with Parkinson's disease, and uh, he became somewhat uh, disabled. Anna's son, and this is an interesting, interesting part, Anna's son, who is Roy, and I, I spend a lot of time in the book about Roy because, as I said, there are only three witnesses to this uh, case, and uh, he was a critical one. Roy became, uh, uh, well, first of all, he served some, served his time in the United States Navy and uh, became a rather famous artist on the West Coast. As a matter of fact, many of his pieces, uh, Roy Dimitri Parsons, um, his pieces are now museum quality and they're collectible. On the very back of my book, uh, on the back cover, there's a small graphic of, of one of his uh, drawings. And uh, that drawing depicts two robed female figures. One represents his mother, Anna. One represents Alice. And uh, I, I love this drawing so much that it, it captures the both of them and their personality so well that I tracked it down and I purchased the original and I now have it hanging in my office. Oh, interesting. Uh, so at the beginning of the interview, I don't want to forget, uh, you said you had been part of the team that had been looking for Alice Parsons' body in the 1990s. Uh, you, you mentioned it had come from a tip. Are, are you allowed to reveal where that tip came from? Yes, of course. And, and actually, the information first came in in 1961. In 1961, a letter came into the postmaster in Stony Brook, New York, and it was a small note with a hand-drawn map of the farm with a big X in the cornfield that said, her body is buried here. Now, at the time, the, the county police department had just been formed and there was a detective working in the sixth precinct by the name of William Stanton. And he was assigned to this case. And um, he spoke to as many local people as he could uh, based upon this hand-drawn map, which was not very accurate. He uh, did an excavation on the farm in 1961. Um, we actually still have photos of that, that, that excavation, and I have them in my archive. Detective Stanton stayed with the police department, and he retired in the late 18, excuse me, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, but he stayed on this case, and he later determined by speaking to other people who had worked at the farm many years before that he had dug in the wrong place. And he got permission from the university, Stony Brook University, who now owned the property, although the farmhouse was still there, the university owned the property. He got permission to, to uh, bring in um, surveyors 
and he believed he had a better location for where the body was. And that was a 1995 dig. I participated in that dig with him, and uh, we found nothing. And a couple of years later, new information came in regarding the possibility of her body being buried in a, in a cemetery in a very old part of Stony Brook and Setauket. And uh, we began that corridor to dig. We did find bones. And before we could finish the dig, there was an outcry from the community uh, regarding the desecration of, of graves, even though it was a corridor. Um, and it was decided that we would close it up and return the items that were discovered back into the grave. That was the decision that the district attorney at the time, his name was James Patterson, made. And quite frankly, uh, in, in at that period of time, in the late 1990s, none of the suspects would have been alive. So it wasn't like we were trying to seek justice. We were trying to answer some old questions. But for the people to be that upset, it just wasn't worth it to proceed any further with it. But I imagine someday, many years from now, somebody's going to do the same excavation I was doing and, and perhaps start over. So aside from this case, what is the, the most memorable case you have ever worked in your law enforcement career? So the most memorable case uh, would have been a person by the name of John Ford, who decided that he and some of his uh, compatriots did not like the politicians that were in office in, in my locale, Suffolk County, New York. And they devised a plan to murder these particular politicians. They wanted them murdered so that people that they supported could run for office and take over these high-level positions. And this included, by the way, the county executive and the district attorney and the head of a political party. And so th what they needed uh, to do was kill them, and they, their plot involved killing them slowly with radiation. And um, how this started with me was I got a call at my office from our organized crime squad down the hall from me and saying, could you come down here for me? I, I, want, I want to show you something. I went down there and there was an organized crime detective and he had somebody sitting at his desk and there was a cardboard box. And he said, listen, this is an informant. My, uh, his name is John Smith. And he tells a story about these wackos who want to kill our politicians with radiation. And he was at their house and he managed to bring some of the radiation with him today. And so I, I look into the box and there's a little metal rod in there and I don't think anything of it. I said, well, listen, I'll be right back. Let me get my Geiger counter out of my truck because I do this stuff for a living. And uh, I put the Geiger counter on it. And of course, the needle pegged all the way up. And it's, it's just like it is on television. Um, you know, it made all that, the clicking noises just like you would expect. So basically, I, I told the detective that he and everybody else in the floor has got to leave right now. It was a high level radiological source. And the, this person and his conspirators did in fact have access to this radiation. W when we hit his house with the search warrant, uh, it was uh, it was quite a sight. I had to step over boxes of high explosives just to get to the radiation, uh, radioactive material that they had in there. Uh, they had uh, uh, all sorts of explosive powders, blasting caps, weapons. Um, this was a, a crazy group. Uh, that was one of my most interesting cases. It was so interesting, as a matter of fact, that I included it in my uh, in a little self-promotion here. I apologize, but I included it in my second volume of my murder season in the Hamptons historical fiction books. And, and the name, subname title on that book was Glowing Sands. And it was about this gentleman and, and their ability to do this kind of crime. Well, my goodness, what a story. So tell us more about the other books that you have written. 
Well, I've written a series of uh, textbooks over the years, mostly having to do with uh, with uh, my passion, which is hot zone forensics, and, and many of them dealing with uh, weapons of mass destruction. And again, uh, I, I actually got to work with the real stuff, whether it be Ebola, uh, anthrax, uh, obviously radiation, which I talked with you about, and some really nasty chemicals over, over my career, and, and basically trying to track those materials back to their point of manufacture, to the person who was using them illegally. Um, and that, that those textbooks uh, are being used at various national academies right now. And uh, I had the luxury of being able to teach the subject with the, to some countries in the European Union. And that was a very good time. Uh, the the uh, historical fiction books is something new for me. I absolutely love doing this. I just completed my third volume. Uh, this series is called Murder Season in the Hamptons. Uh, the first volume I, I mentioned earlier uh, involves uh, both Alice Parsons, uh, part of her case, as well as uh, the sinking of the RMS Republic in 1909 off the coast of, of Nantucket. And, and as I mentioned, that was a subject of an HBO special um, probably in the last couple of years. Uh, Hunting for a Hidden Treasure, I believe was the name of it, something along that line. But uh, it, that's the first book. I followed that up with another volume with the same character. And again, this stretches over decades. The, the next one, volume two, starts in the 1960s and goes through to the current time. And now it involves uh, Mr. Ford, who we just spoke about a couple of minutes ago uh, from one of my major cases early on. And the third volume, which is now out for editing, I hope to have it out this winter, uh, Murder Season in the Hamptons. And the second part of the title is not, not complete yet, but it has to do with an old inn on Long Island, a place called Canoe Place Inn, which has got a storied history. Um, again, uh, 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 there will be a, a lost treasure aspect of it. Um, there's, uh, there's a homicide, of course, and there's a homicide detective, and it's, it's a, quite an interesting story. So that's it. Those are the three that I've, I've completed and uh, been busy the last five years between the textbooks, the historical fictions, and the Alice Parsons book. It's been five books in five years, and I'm a little tired, so I, I may take a little break for a while. Well, well great. This has been so eye-opening. I appreciate your time. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Eric. I do appreciate uh, uh, you having me on, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Again, I have been speaking to Stephen C. Drelak. He is the author of Long Island's Vanished Heiress, The Unsolved Alice Parsons Kidnapping. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.